lot of kids in here. Rough looking group, but we'll give it a go this morning. I, I taught a Yadah class this morning. The Lord blessed us all. And um, I think when you turn a certain age, I'm about to turn 51. I cannot imagine what I'm going to be like when I'm 81. You pretty much get done trying to please people. I, this morning, I'm sitting there trying to come up with my 35 slides this morning. I felt like the Lord said, what are you doing? I was like, I don't know. I can't stand it. There are some people that are wonderful with slides. That's just not me. And I'll do it from time to time, but I'm, this morning, is, this thing is coming from here. And I have, that's, just, that's just how we're going to do it. I'm going to bring Nelson up here at the end of my sermon, interview him. He didn't want to get on stage. You got to be careful when you get around me. And I'm telling you, you start telling me what God's doing. I don't know what to tell you because there's no, there's no great man of God and testimonies transform folks. And so Nelson's like, what do you mean I'm coming on stage? Like, do you not understand English? What do you think I mean when I said that? Uh, do we have the slide? I, I did the one slide, that the, the, the decree that I, I didn't mention that this morning. Do we have that, Miriam, that we're starting every um, teaching time with that decree? It's up there. I, I should have told you that earlier. I felt like the Lord just reminded me of that. And I think this decree is powerful. It's a little long. Uh, my wife's better at coming up with decrees than I am. This one's a little wordy, and it actually came from me, which is a little shocking. Normally, my decrees would be about four words. But I think the crux of this decree is really, really, really powerful because what it says is uh, there, is no, there is no great man of God. Can I, can I say something? This morning, I'm going to talk about how to recover well and finish well. This is going to be eschatology combined with the recovery model of discipleship. Because one of the things I noticed, hardly any leader in the kingdom, in the Bible, or, or on earth finishes well. It's unbelievable to me. You have almost an impossible time finding a leader who finishes well. And I'll tell you this, we make way too many heroes out of our leaders. And so this decree is not just something cute to do. Do we have it? Somewhere? Um, I should have pulled it up earlier. You know what? We could just end the, how about we end the sermon with it? All right, I'm going to read the story of Jacob and Esau. I've never had anybody in my life come to me with a plan to destroy their lives. Wouldn't that be really funny, by the way? Pastor, can I meet with you? I have got it figured out. I know how to finish poorly and lose everything. But at the same time, I, I, you don't really meet people that have a plan to finish well. And whether you're taking notes or taking some mental notes... One day we're not going to be on the earth anymore. We're all going to see each other up there. It's going to be really awkward. Some of us will be skinnier. We'll hopefully all be younger. It'll be like, man, are you so-and-so? And you're going to remember I said this. I'm going to make this so simple. You have to hire a bunch of lawyers to help you misunderstand it. If you do not have a plan to finish well, you won't. If you don't have a plan to safeguard your marriage, it won't be safeguarded. If you don't have a plan for spiritual formation, you will not be any closer to the Father this time next year than you are now. And passion is great, but passion if passion's overrated. Passion without a plan can just get you riled up. You can be really passionate at the altar when you haven't sat long enough in the scriptures yet that say if you have an offense with your brother, go get that right first before you come and give me your worship. You, you can get more money than anyone in the church and be full of offense and open up yourself to, to devil pathways to destroy your life. What I'm trying to say is this. 
I like being passionate, but I also want to plan to stay connected to him and to finish well. And th- we all know this story. Um, well, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us know this story, and it's just uncomfortable. Let me paraphrase it here. Jacob and Esau were the sons of Isaac and Rebekah, and the first twins mentioned in the Bible, even before they were born, they were struggling together in the womb of their mother. Wild. Their prenatal striving foreshadowed later conflict. Wonderful story. The twins grew up very different. Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Reminds me a lot of Mike Jones, you know, not liking the outdoors, things like that. That's a joke. His mother's favorite. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. That just feels good. I, I, I'm not an Esau, really, but in my heart I am. Um, Michael Thornton took Jonah camping this weekend. I gave Michael a word. I said, if that was me with my son, we would be in grave danger. Uh, how many Esau's do we have in here? You're just an Esau man. Wow. No Esau's in this entire church. Read. We got one. So we got a bunch of Jacobs in here, a bunch of conniving. In my heart, I'm an Esau. Sometimes I just lay in bed. I think, I just want to go outside. I live on a golf course, but what, let's just say I did live in Montana. I just killed a grizzly bear with my hands, drug it in front of the house, barked at my two sons. My wife cries at how protective and awesome I am. But it's just a fantasy. It really is. Because you know what I'm going to do tonight? I've already looked at the recipe. I, I'm not kidding you. I'm making tortellini tonight, and um, I'm excited about it. That's the most non-Esau thing ever, though. Help me, Jesus. So one day Esau returned from hunting and desired some of the lentil stew that Jacob was cooking. That doesn't seem manly to me. I, I don't know of a man I've ever known that desires lentil stew after working hard all day, but so be it. Maybe he was vegan. I don't know how it works in heaven. I don't know. Maybe one day the Lord told me I was going to learn how to cook in heaven, and I thought, where do you get the meat from? I don't know. Maybe you all have a better theology than I do because I can tell you what I'm not going to be cooking in heaven. That's another sermon. Jacob offered to give his brother some stew in exchange for his birthright. The special honor that Esau possessed as the older son, which gave him the right to a double portion of his father's inheritance. Esau put away, or Esau put his temporary physical needs over his God-given blessing and sold his birthright to Jacob. Is the affair worth pleasing your flesh? Emotional affair, physical affair, is the cheating on your taxes worth it? Is the pornography worth it? Is the momentary pleasure of what brings me some peace to my flesh, is the addiction worth it knowing that this place is so temporary down here? Is it really worth being a Uzziah to have 35 years of a great run as a king of Israel only to give in to your flesh and have to spend throughout all eternity being known, known as a king that went well for 35 years and then finished poorly. If you read the New Testament for yourself, there's way more passages about finishing well than even beginning a journey with Jesus. Uh, there should be a holy fear in me that I desire with a passion to never be an Esau and please my flesh for momentary satisfaction, knowing that in Romans 14.10 and Romans 5.10, I'm going to face the Lord one day 
the earth can seem like a long time. It's really not a long time. This thing is a blip on the radar. This thing is a mist. This thing is quick. And I want to give a word to the house today before I jump into this message on recovery. There's a part of sanctification that simply requires things other than receiving Papa's love. I hear the word Papa a lot in charismatic circles. We have to understand God created us in his image and many of us have returned the favor. The word Abba and the word Papa in the English language, they're, they're not the same thing. There is a deep reverential fear of God in the word, the Aramaic word Abba. There, when the fear of the Lord becomes the driving force in your life, your flesh may never bow the knee to your spirit man and your desires. It may never settle down. Your flesh may wage war against who you know you should be, but at least when you're being driven by the fear of the Lord, you can keep your flesh at bay knowing that it's temporary down here. Let me say it to you this way. If your purity for your family is what keeps you clean, you're going to be taken out at some point. It's when your purity before the Lord is what keeps you clean. That is the best plan I have ever seen in my life to finish well. Your spouse is not going to be at the judgment seat. I'm not. You know, where's the fear of the Lord gone? Sean's over here this morning. I wrote a book. He got me published with his company, and I wrote a book called The Fear of the Lord's Returning to the Church. And it's funny, I had way more people that wanted to interview me when I was talking about Abba's love and tenderness and signs and wonders and the kindness of the Father. But the moment you write a chapter on the judgment seat of Christ, there's not that many interviews. If I brought in famous speakers and we talked about physical and emotional healing, you could have 1,500 people in this room. But if I had a conference on developing a plan to finish well for the judgment seat of Christ, you probably could have it in the prayer chapel. And I'm saying both are necessary and both are awesome. And I love the kindness of the Father. But I'm going to tell you what keeps a person faithful to the end. It's when you fear him. John Bevere interviewed Jim Baker in prison. Jim Baker at one time had a very high and mighty ministry. John asked him a question in prison many years ago. When did you stop loving Jesus? He said, I never stopped loving Jesus. I stopped fearing him. Think about the story of Jacob and Esau. He gave away his birthright for some soup. I mean, I can see giving it away for like some high-end prime rib or something, but lentil stew? One moment and he becomes the father of a nation he wasn't intended to be? Eugene Peterson wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. All right, Garden Academy kids, look at me. Do you honestly want to be a person that when you're 89, you're more wound up at 89 than you are now? If you say yes, then here's the question. What's on your frontal lobe that keeps you on the straight and narrow the older you get? There's nothing more exciting than being around an old person that is still wound up for the Lord, childlike, and fears him. So we all know we need to. That's not, if it were that easy and that's all you do, then how come so many leaders finish poorly? I'm getting to the point now where when I hear about, some, even studying somebody in scripture of like, I wasn't really aware that he fell off the wagon that hard. I studied all the kings in Israel and I about needed some Xanax after I studied all the kings of Israel. Whether you look in the natural realm, read church history, read the book God's Generals, hardly anyone finishes well. There's three areas a person can fall in, sex, money, and power. 
Richard Foster wrote a book on it in the late 70s, Sex, Money, and Power. Why is it that when a person is given a large jurisdiction, when your company grows tenfold, when now you're the person on the circuit and you're the person training all the others, why is it that so many people fall? I think a couple of reasons. Number one, I don't think it's ignorance. I think it's drifting away from Scripture itself. I double-dog dare you to do something between now and Christmas. Take your own Bible and come up with as many passages as you can on the judgment seat of Christ, finishing well, and what awaits you on the other side. Like to me, fearing God has nothing to do with me being scared of him, but it makes me scared to death to be away from him. Let me ask you a couple questions. Do you need someone else in your life to stir you up? Do you, without that person in your life, do you feel like, I don't even know if I can even follow the Lord? We got to get away from a parasite mindset because parasites live off the blood of other, uh, other animals. Is, let me, I'm going to say it this clearly, is the Lord enough for you and do you have the judgment seat of Christ in your frontal lobe? The reason I'm bringing it up is this. So when the opportunity to eat your lentil stew comes, you're more prone to say no to it even though your flesh desires it when you keep the what's ahead of you on your frontal lobe. I feel the presence of God manifesting so strongly on me right now. Really strong right here. Where have the reformers gone? There's been enough charismatic conferences playing footsie with the message of Papa God, and it's as though he doesn't even care about how we live our lives. Not only does he care, your gossip and your slander is a massive deal. When you walk in disunity, you might as well say out loud, devil, I invite you to destroy my life. The Greek word for offense is scandalon. It's a trap. And when you step into it, Papa, Daddy, God will now allow the demonic realm to destroy your life. John Bevere stood on stage one day and he kept getting a word of knowledge over a teenager in the audience. And he kept giving this strong word. Step out of rebellion. Step out of rebellion. Whoever you are, step out of rebellion. The enemy seeks to destroy your life. He goes on and on and on. Gave the invitation seven times. Three months later, a teenager was in a car wreck and it was horrific. She had an encounter with the Lord. The story ends this way. The pastor reconnected with John Bevere and she told the story from her end. When God gives us warnings, that's Papa Daddy God giving us warnings because he knows how the real world works. And the real world works like this. When you don't fear the Lord and you're not under Psalm 91, you are in deep trouble. And you say, well, that just, I, I think that's a little heavy handed. It's because you don't have the word in you. And because honestly, we've gotten so addicted to milk and hopping from conference to conference that we just want the great man of God to give us a hug and tell us everything's going to be okay. When we walk in disobedience, everything's not okay. And you say, why are you so wound up about that? Because when I'm in a hotel room by myself, me, Chad Norris, when I'm on a trip somewhere, when I'm somewhere where no one knows me as pastor, these things are on my frontal lobe. Because these things are the things that keep us on the straight and narrow. I'm living for an audience of one. Ah, pastor this and pastor that. I'm not going to stand before him as a pastor. Here's the deal. I feel like Satan's tactic in the American church is one gigantic ambient. And this is what I'm saying. I'm telling you to wake up. The only commandment that comes with the promise of a blessing is when you honor your father and mother. Well, it's, it's not really a big deal because Papa God loves me so I can treat my teacher like a jerk. 
I can talk to my parents like a jerk. You don't know God and how things work. Honor demands a blessing. Dishonor opens doorways for devils. We're getting to the point. The church doesn't believe in devils. Literally, we don't. We do, we do not. We've created this fictional Christianity that Papa Daddy loves me and it doesn't matter what I do with my life. Oh, it matters. Do you know that your, your escalation, your, your escalation, catalogical view of what you're going to do forever. It has to be based in scripture that proves this. Jesus is drafting off of your obedience on the earth to determine what you will do forever. And some people are so offended, even with their mom and dad, you carry bitterness for 50 years, not knowing if you would just release bitterness. You're only down here for a blip. And you're going to be one of the ones in heaven one day that go, what did I do down there? Your disobedience will cost you on this earth and in the life to come. And I'm going to give you a plan right now. I've got, look, look at this. I'm, I'm in it. I, y'all want some of this? I'm going to give you something that will help you. And even if you don't like me right now, I don't care because I love you. I have never been more passionate to pastor this church in my life. I cried all week this, this week. I told the father this week, because I don't talk to the devil. Some of y'all need to stop that. Be careful of all that. I said, let him know that the next 10 years, I'm coming. From 40 to 50 here, God has done great things, my wife and I. Last week, it did something inside of me. All right, I'm on, here it is. Here it is right here. To say, you fear, to say you have a, a passion to fear the Lord, but you don't have a plan to match it is an accident waiting to happen. I'm about to talk about something that works for recovery and it works for the judgment seat. I did not read this in a book. I didn't go to recovery.com backslash how to preach a sermon. I don't do that. Someone not too long ago emailed me and said, can you send me my sermon notes? I said, bless your heart. No, I no, I mean, I'm just not that person. Some people are. Here, here it goes. St. Teresa of Avila was a Spanish mystic nun in the 1500s. In seminary, Helms and I had to read one of her books called Interior Castle. And in her book, she talked about the inner prayer life, and there's seven interior castles to the soul. She was a contemporary St. John of the Cross. She was a big deal. This past week, I go into a swirl. I went into about seven swirls this past week. You say, what is a swirl? It's when you're walking so close, close with God like Enoch that he'll stop you in your tracks and you got to get your journal out. And God started talking to me about St. Teresa of Avila. Then I'm in a meeting and I look at my wife and I say, grab that book right there. It's right back here in the library. And it's a, it's a biography on her life. I kid you not, I had no idea. This matches what I want to talk about in the recovery series. And this is one of the most important plans you will ever develop. And most people don't have the courage to develop it. Here's what Teresa used to do with the other sisters in the monastery or whatever it was called. I can't remember what it was called. Maybe a convent. I don't know. I don't know. Witches may go to convents. I don't know what, I don't know what it's called. Is it a convent? That sounds wrong. It's a convent. What do witches, what are witches attracted? Yeah, see, and that's, we don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about convents. All right. I couldn't get it straight. She asked the sisters to, on rhythm, call out her deficiencies and blind spots because that's what helped her bond with God. 
Have you heard this one before? Only God can judge me. Na, 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 na. Hey, hey, hey. You won't finish well. Na, 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 na. All right, so let's throw up the recovery acronym thing. I think that's what it's called. Uh, it's my one slide today. Look how good the Lord is. Look at that down there. Look at that. Won't he do it, Les? Let's give him a hand clap. All right. It's a joke. Relax. People that are used to the religious spirit, they hate me and they don't like this church. But you're welcome here. You're not going to like it. It's going to get worse. Openly examine and confess my faults to myself, to God, and to someone I trust. Happy are the pure in heart. Okay. If I ask you in here, hey, do you want to have a pure heart before God? If you said no, then I don't, I mean, I don't know who can help you. But if you say, yes, I want to have a pure heart before God, here's how it works. You ready? We've gone over a couple steps so far. Step one, I'm not God. And in that, I, I can't manage my mess. Uh, step two, God can. He's amazing. We make our way all the way down to, I'm depending upon the Lord, but it gets to this one step. Many people in recovery models say that this step is the hardest one because guess why? I'm so, I'm about, I, am, I am so happy over the next 14 minutes to say what I'm about to say. This is the step where people win or lose in their connection to God, in their finishing well, in overcoming hurts, habits, and hangups. Because a lot of people think they're walking in intimacy with God. They're not. They're actually hiding in prayer rooms. They're it's disassociated, yada. It's hiding, yada. You don't just need you and God time. You need you and people time. The first thing Jesus did when he began his ministry was pray about the world's first ever recovery group, 12 disciples. I'm going to break this step down so simple you can't misunderstand it. Not some of us, because some people still in, the, in this room right now, you think recovery is about a recovering alcoholic or a drug addict or a porn addict. <laughs> we are all recovering from a hurt, habit, or hang-up and being sanctified and groomed to the image of Jesus. There is a step that I have seen practice. I've seen it in what I've read. I've seen it in the dissertation I just wrote. Y'all still don't call me doctor. That's hurting me on a daily basis. I'm kidding. It, the people that can confess their sins to others are the people that get healed. This is where, uh, this is what separates the boys from the girls, the men from the women. Watch this. Because a lot of times we think, me and God, we're okay. <laughs> All right. Your breakthrough is predicated upon humility. If you cannot confess your faults to someone else, how do you think you're in a relationship with someone that you can't see, taste, touch, heal, or fear, or feel, or hear? If I can't do it with those around me, it's not even biblical. There is something that is so anti-shame when you get it in the light, not just in the prayer chapel by yourself, but with people, and a grace hits, and the demons leave, and the sting's not as bad. Because it actually feels good. Confess your faults one to another, your sins one to another, so that you may be what? Heal. Your interconnected relationships may be on the verge of a higher level of intimacy if you will just pray one prayer. And this is 
This is an awful prayer because he always answers it. Holy Spirit, would you just search me and expose anything in me that I need to share to who in my life? He will always give you the what and the who. But here's what we do. God uses three C's to help us. Conflict, crisis, and catastrophe. Most of the time on a conflict, excuse me, confrontation, crisis, catastrophe. On the confrontation, 10 times out of nine, not every once in a while, God will use other people to begin a conversation with you that God's actually trying to get you into the river of grace. And the river of grace is when you begin to confess what you're not, who you're not, and why you need his grace. And until you can get to a place where you do it with another person, you will be stagnant. It's like a stuck. I dare you to do something this week. If you feel stuck in your relationship with God, ask him to shine light on this. Um, For example, do you know that you can become addicted to church, to working in church? You can serve our children's ministry every week, but actually go 10 years in this church and no one know you and you develop a victim mindset and you say it's because they just don't help us connect enough when the whole problem the entire time is the person you're looking at in the mirror because you're so closed off, you'd rather be addicted to what you're doing than what you're sharing from your own heart. I'm about to bring Nelson up here in a minute. It's it's really... I love walking with God, I want to read this passage, because I'm firmly convinced I'm not in control. <laughs> take, a, take a couple of seconds as I look for this passage. Where are you at on the metric of what you think you do and do not control? I, I think we kind of, we convince ourselves we control something. We don't control anything. This is from Mark 8. Calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat, I am. Don't run from suffering, embrace it. So we're at the men's breakfast. The women's breakfast yesterday is a little bit different than the men's breakfast. A little bit. I walked in this morning, I'm like, this is amazing. This place looks great in here. I got me, Ricky, and A-Rod trying to get enough bacon for 60 men. And I'm like, who bought the plates? Somebody go get the plates. We don't have any plates. All right. So at the men's breakfast, what, Nelson, three months ago? Come on up here. Three months ago? He, he doesn't want to be up here, and that's okay. You come this way. At least he's got a Braves hat on this morning. All right. Let's give Nelson a hand this morning. This is a fun story for me because this is how it went down. Let me start with Friday night and then go back to the breakfast, all right? He doesn't even know the questions I'm going to ask him because I want it to be true to the word that you said of going, right? We want to flow with the wind of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Friday night, uh, Wendy and I went out with Elias and Laura, and we were supposed to go to a restaurant called Scoundrel, which I thought, ooh, that makes me feel like I'm doing something wrong. Where the heck are we going? It's scoundrel. Only to find out it's a great restaurant. Something got canceled, and we had to go to a restaurant called Restaurant 17, which is about an hour from here. It's connected to that fancy hotel. What's the name of the hotel? Dumb of course, Tinsley knows it. So it's up there about an hour from here. And Wendy and I get there before uh, Elias and Laura do, and of course, we see you and your bride Amanda out there. Well, what's, what's, what's awesome how it relates to this passage, I don't lead, right? 
you and me, out of the 60 men, I had the longest conversation with you at the men's breakfast a month ago. Maybe God is real. We had a conversation about your story. You had a horrific car wreck. You should have died. Now you're here kind of wondering what's going on. Why don't you tell like two to three minutes of your story of how you guys got here, how the Lord got you here, and then I want to ask you a couple questions. How did I get here? Yeah. I got here because for many years, me and my wife wanted to transition out of Florida, but I was so busy, you know, in Florida that every time I seen a way to leave Florida, I always got caught up with more work. So um, after the car accident, we just started praying that God makes ways. Tell them how, tell the brief version of how horrific this accident was. Uh, well, we was in Miami visiting my, my sister-in-law and my, my nephew's over there. It was his birthday. And, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was in the world. I used to drink, smoke, do all that stuff. But when I went down there, it was, uh, it was like I felt that I didn't want to be there. It was like a feeling I never felt in my life before. And uh, uh, my wife came up to me eventually and asked me what's going on because she didn't see a beer in my hand, things like that. And I just basically told her I wanted to leave. So we drove three and a half hours to uh, stay for the party. And then she asked me, would I be willing to drive back? So I told her, of course. So by the time the party was done, our three boys, Jordan that's here, his two brothers are in the military. We had about a 30-minute debate because my wife doesn't leave the kids anywhere, and we were, I was ready to go home. So uh, it was a 30-minute debate till our sister-in-law came out and said if we leave them, she would bring them back, you know, back to us. So I told my wife, well, that decision's up to you. I, I got in the car, I'm ready to go. So as we left, um, we were going back home, and then we got stuck in traffic for about an hour and a half from a car accident that happened prior to ours, that killed four, four people. So they closed, you know, the east, uh, the south, the east and westbound to go back. So we had to backtrack. So then I'm telling my wife, we should have just stood there. You know, and I'm like, man, you know, because the drive we already took. So we had to backtrack another hour and a half to then get on 95 to take 95. Make a long story short. Um, by the time we were, we were getting on 95, um, my youngest daughter, not my infant now, but my youngest daughter cried hysterically. I mean, Amanda ended up taking off her seatbelt, jumping to the back. She was still crying. She took her out of the car seat. And the minute she took her out that car seat, we just got rear-ended. And um, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what was going on. I just know something was happening. And uh, to the point where... I ended up passing out after the fact, and then I woke up to my oldest daughter screaming out for me from a distance, and uh, from there was when I was trying to find my family in that car because my oldest daughter was tucked under my seat, my wife was under benches with my with Amaris, and uh, from that point on was when I realized I was in a car accident, and. Uh, the car, the, I thought the van was going to turn on fire, so I was trying to get exit out of it. Finally, I got the passenger door open, and it was just the darkest night i ever seen in my life. I mean, 95 usually is always packed, and there was nothing going on. So when we was up in the field that we were up on the tree where we stopped at, 
I just yelled. I yelled for help. And uh, two kids that were actually going to college stopped, but they didn't want to come towards the van because they see everything that happened, and they didn't want to be terrified in their mind because of um, how bad the accident was. They thought they were going to see dead bodies in there. So EMT, state troopers, all that, didn't know how we even walked out that vehicle. So as I laid in the hospital, my oldest daughter had to get airborne to a kid's hospital. So I told them they need to check me out because my daughters have never been, um, you know, we've never been separated. Ever since my wife came into my life, she's the only thing that I've had for, you know, since God put her in my life. She's, you know, God has directed me through her in a way where I needed, you know, her. And uh, as they took my oldest daughter, um, I asked them, they told me that, you know, they had to lie to me and tell me that they're just going to do some tests on her. So time passed by and I asked where my daughter is and they told me they had to airborne her. So right then and there, I got very hysterical. I, I, I got very upset. I was to the point where I was plotting on killing the guy that, you know, the person that did this to us. And uh, I'm asking everybody in there, you know, the individual. So I didn't know if it was a him or her. I just knew it became a him when they said, he's okay. We're taking care of you. So right then and there, I knew it was a guy. So I started plotting on, you know, taking vengeance into my own hands. And the minute I did, I went completely numb where I could not see. And uh, I heard the most powerfulest voice that I've ever heard in my life tell me everything I ever called luck was never luck. And um, as that happened, I seen a picture of a kid running in the middle of the street, getting ran over by a car, turning on, lighting our house on fire, jumping from factory to factory, all the way up to that kid was growing until I realized that was me. You know, I was ran over as a little kid. Um, I lit my father's house on fire. I've did things that I still to this day am shocked that I even was a kid doing these things. But at that moment when I was, like I said, as I was laying and I see in that, I, he showed me the whole accident. And at that accident point was where he said it again. Everything you ever call luck was never luck. And I used to live on that, on that term, me and my friends from the world, we used to live on, you know, we were lucky we got away with that. We were lucky that that didn't happen. We were lucky you didn't get killed. We were lucky, you know, and I realized there's no such thing as luck. It's either it is or it isn't. He either allows it or he doesn't allow it. So he didn't allow me, my wife, my daughters, and the three boys that stayed in Miami to die because he didn't allow it. It wasn't luck. It's just his hand was over us. And from that point on, I'm just searching for that voice again. And I You told to me at that breakfast, you knew you had to forgive. You knew you had to release that thing. I did. I had to let everything go. And, uh, you know, I'm still learning. I still struggle. You know, I still just keeping, you know, I just go with the wind now. I go with the way. Can we talk about that? Because yeah. uh, we weren't even supposed to go to that restaurant. We go to the restaurant. You and Amanda are sitting there. You, Amanda, me, Wendy are about to take some what we call Shema journeys around here, just going a deep place into the Father's heart. Maybe God's real. Maybe he's the one that set it up. Yeah. <laughs> After we talked to you, you don't know this, the waitress came up to our table and said, are you Chad Norris? Did you write a book called Mama Jane's Secret? Wow. I'm like, wow. My, I heard you say, I just let the wind take me. That's it. Well, here's what I hear you saying in that. 
the less you control of your life, the more he's taking control of it. All right, talk, talk that out. I just, I got it to a point where I was, I was very controlling. I always wanted to, you know, I would get corrections from my wife, like, well, you can't control that, and you just got to let it be. You got to let God. I'm like, well, I'm in the flesh. I got to take care of this. I got to do that. And it was like the more that she's in just embraces it into me. Well, you're not in control. God's the one in control. You just got to let it be. Just, the more I let her pour into me that I, I realized, I was like, that's the Holy Spirit through her telling me this. So the more I let go, the more I see everything just goes at ease because I'm going with the wind, not against the wind. You know, I'm not going with, against the, the currents. I'm going with the current. And I'm just letting them take the wheel because all my life I was like that. My wife will tell you I was very controlling and... um. I always wanted to be the one to control everything and this, that, the other. And I'm, you know, I'm having to have to die to that, to where it's just like he's the one that's in control. You know, like you told us that that's uh, Friday, you know, we're just in the passenger seats. He's the driver. And we just have to let him drive. Like, no matter what storms comes our ways, no matter the things that we go through, they go, we go through them for a reason. And I'm starting to realize that is for him to either purify us more and to trust in him more and lean on his understanding, not on ours, because this world can really collapse us. I'm telling you that right now. I'm 44 years old. I'm about to be 45, and I've only walked five, five years, going on six years with Christ. And I've always known that there was a higher being. I've always known there had to be something that created this world, even when I was in the world, because I used to look at the clouds and the moons and the trees, grass, and I always knew that, you know, science didn't create this. This was all God. This was something that we don't see. And it's, that's what I'm doing in my life. Like, I don't care about what I see in this world anymore because it's all a lie. Like Pastor Chad said, Dr. Chad said. <laughs> <laughs> This is all temporary. I care about where I, me, my wife, and I pray for all my children because, like you said, and it's wild because as praise and worship was happening this morning, what you said, I was thinking the same way too. I was like, Lord, I'm just going to praise you all the days of my life because when I am in front of you, you guys won't be there. I'll be in there one-on-one -on -one with him. My wife will be one-on-one -on -one with him. My son, my daughters. And right now, I'm just praying for God's salvation over my family that if I go, because I'm ready to go, I'm, I'm ready to go to heaven. You know, I pray every day, break those clouds, come in that white horse, because this is, this is um, it's beautiful to see all you guys here, but once we leave behind those doors, we go back to the real world. We go back to where we all get attacked. We are going to keep going through things that the devil's trying to break us out of because we love Christ. And as long as we love Christ, he's not going to leave us alone. Can we give Nelson a hand this morning? Um, I'll close with this. This particular step to me is the evidence of humility. Because when a person is unwilling to confess their faults to their ordained person they're supposed to confess, it's just a high form of control. 
And you gotta be careful because you actually can become addicted to religious activity when your heart's not being transformed because you're, you're just hanging on to control. Think of it this way. If you want God to bless your life, completely let go and do it his way. And it may be a little bit bumpy, but at least you'll have his blessing because what we control, he actually takes his hand off of. Let's stand up together. I'll speak a blessing over us. I bless this house that we would get in the passenger seat and let him drive. Go in peace. God bless.